Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh, Pastor of Young Adults. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. Good to hear you all, or good to see you all here. Um, so think back for a second when you were 13 years old. I know those, you know, when you're eighth grade year might make you shudder, I think. Um, think back when you're eighth grade. What was the dream you had for your life? Like when you grew up and become like a real adult, like what was your life gonna look like? I'll tell you what my dream when I was in eighth grade looked like. See, I lived in Atlanta, and I knew in eighth grade I was going to attend Georgia Tech, just like my dad did, just like my granddad did, and just like my great-granddad did. I'd be an engineer, just like, you know, just like they all do at Georgia Tech. You know, I'd have my rambling wreck of Georgia Tech. I'd uh, graduate with honors, become a successful engineer. I'd make a lot of money in the Atlanta area. I'd... uh, have a nice house in the suburbs. I'd you know, have a pretty wife, a couple kids, maybe live on a lake, maybe have a boat. You know, I could, you know, I'd, I'd have this this comfortable, lovely life where I could pursue my hobbies and pursue my dreams. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd be a part of a church too. You know, what was your dream at eighth grade? You see, all of us have a dream, what sociologists call the American dream. Now, each one of us have different takes on the American dream or different perspectives, but most of us as Americans come together and kind of can agree on what the good life looks like. Well, you know, the nation of Israel, during the time of the New Testament, they too had an, an Israelite dream. They had their Jewish dream of what the good life looked like. And for the Jewish people, the good life looked like this. It looked like having a place, the promised land, having a person, a redeemer that would rule and judge over, over them. And it would, be, it would have the presence of God dwelling in the temple. Well, we're going to look at a guy today named Stephen, who calls into question that Jewish dream. And he calls into question our American dream as well. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. So we've got a lot to cover. Before we do, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Most precious Father, you are so good and kind. Lord, you are wise, and we recognize that you know all things. You know what is true and good. Father, as you look at this event we've seen in the life of the early church, Lord, would you see how the Holy Spirit empowered Stephen could power us. Lord, would you look into our own hearts and allow the light of Jesus and the vision of Christ to, to critique us and to call out things that ultimately will lead us astray. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me introduce you to this man named Stephen. Stephen is a deacon in the early church, and he served with the care on the square of the church in Jerusalem, where he he served in uh, giving out food to widows and orphans. And scripture tells us he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And as he was serving these widows with the distribution of food, he was also telling them about Jesus, how Jesus came, he was the son of God, he died, and he rose again, and that changes everything. The Jewish leaders didn't quite like this. And look with me, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 12. And they, the Jewish leaders, stirred up the people 
and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Here's Stephen. He's accused before the council, the Sanhedrin, and before the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, this is the same council and the same high priest that Jesus was brought before. And here's the accusation before Stephen. People say to you, Stephen, that you're telling people that Jesus Christ forever changes the way we relate to the temple, to the Old Testament law, and to our cultural customs. The temple, the Old Testament law, cultural customs. What do you say, Stephen, to this accusation? <laughs> and this like blue collar guy, you know, he responds by the longest address in the entire book of Acts. For the next 53 verses, he gives a history of Israel 101 to the religious leaders and the high priest of his day. And he gives the history of Israel. The history of Israel could be summed up in three things. Place, person, and presence. You see, there was no Israel until Father Abraham. You know, Father Abraham, it's many sons. You know, that Father Abraham. Father Abraham was a nomadic herder. And Jesus appeared to Abraham and said, I am going to, you no longer are you going to be a nomadic herder. I'm going to give you a land, a promised land, where your people are going to live. They can plant vineyards. They can establish themselves in this promised land. You will be, you will be prosperous. You will be safe. And you will be at peace. Well, the Old, the Old Testament tells us that the nation of Israel for a time lived in the promised land, but due to a famine, they moved to Egypt. But in Egypt, they prospered because a Pharaoh looked favorably on these people. But scripture says, a Pharaoh rose up who was intimidated by the prosperity of the nation of Israel, and that Pharaoh enslaved Israel. And for 400 years, the nation of Israel were in slavery. For 400 years, they didn't have a day off. And every day, you wake up, make bricks. Wake up, cut straw. Wake up, bricks, straw. Bitter work, bitter slavery for 400 years. In all that time, they were longing for a day that God would send a redeemer, a deliverer, someone who would redeem them from slavery in Egypt into freedom back to the promised land. And that person God raised up was Moses. And through the many plagues, you can read about it in the book of Exodus, God freed the nation of Israel and sent them to a promised land. And it's through this redeemer, Moses, that God brought the Old Testament law, the Torah. The scripture tells us that Moses was still on the mountain and the nation of Israel turned their backs on God and made a golden calf. And because of that sin, God punished the nation of Israel and caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years. But God's presence was still with them. You see, he told them to make what he called the tent of my presence, the tabernacle. 
so that during their wilderness wandering, they would look at where the high priest would kill an animal and burn it, and they would see the smoke rise up, and they could point to the smoke and say, God's presence is still with us. And eventually, after the 40 years, the nation of Israel went back into the promised land by King David, and ultimately Solomon built this beautiful temple, far beautiful than anything we could even imagine today. And every day, and then especially once a year, they would see the smoke coming up from the temple and all of Israel in the promised land, having a high priest could look at that smoke and say, God's presence is with us. God is with us. And so here's Stephen retelling this story, the, the Jewish dream to the Sanhedrin of a place, the promised land, of a person, a redeemer, and of the presence of God in the temple. So as I'm studying this passage, I'm like, why in the world? Like, this is blue-collar guy, right? And he's giving the Sanhedrin and the high priest an Old Testament lesson, right? Almost every one of these Sanhedrin had the first five books of the Bible memorized. What's going on here? It'd be like, imagine Cleveland Clinic and UH, they're gonna have a conference, a medical conference with all the leaders in the medical field and all the best doctors and surgeons and say they need space, so they have it here. So this room is full of the best surgeons and doctors in the world. And before their first plenary session, when I get the mic, I, kind of, I come up to the front and I say, listen, everyone, I have, I have a message. I think you need to know this. The knee bone's connected to the leg bone, the leg bone. Right, like, like you know, I see the Clevelands out there. Like, everyone would be like, take this crazy man-child off the stage because, like, it doesn't make, like, in the first, in initial reading, it doesn't make sense. Until I started thinking maybe in a, a Hebraic way, a Jewish way. See, what Stephen's doing here is he's hitting on three themes. He's hitting on the theme of place, about the promised land. He's hitting on the theme of a person, about a redeemer. He's hitting off the theme of presence, about the, about the temple. You know what he's doing? He's reminding these leaders that their Jewish dream is in shambles. You see, they were in the promised land, but they were enslaved in the promised land by the Roman Empire. You see, this whole time, they're looking for a redeemer, a person to come deliver them, a prophet, something. And for 400 years, God has been silent. And the temple that they're in, the the, the temple that was once so gorgeous and beautiful, the Salamic temple was destroyed. And here they are in this kind of like cheap version of a half temple, right? It's It's like God's dorm room. Right? It's, it's, it's just not the same. And what Stephen's saying is, your Jewish dream is in shambles. Look with me at verse 51 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 51. So he finishes this, Jew, this lecture and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Guys, look, I'm a blue-collar guy. I'm not an elder. I'm not a Sanhedrin, but your dream, your Jewish dream is in shambles. You know, one of, the, uh, one of my favorite things about the Bible is that though it was written 2,000 years ago, different place, different culture, different custom, man, it can reach out and grab hold of us today. You see, we as Americans, we have an American dream. And we have an American dream that looks a lot like the Jewish dream, right? We think about and dream about a place, a person, and a presence. You see, the Jewish people, they were communal. They thought as a group. But as Americans, we're individualistic. We think of ourselves as individuals. So the Israelites, they wanted a place, the promised land, where they would find rest and peace. For us Americans, we wait for that next life stage. Right, if you're in eighth grade, all you can think about is, man, when I get into high school, when I get into high school, I'll find rest and peace. And when you're in high school, if I get into that right college, if I can get into the, then I'll be able to breathe. And then when you get into college, you're into that, and you think, oh, if I can just get into that right job or that right union, then I can find rest and peace. And you get married. If I can just get married, I'll find rest and peace. If I can just... If we can just have children, then we'll be at peace. If the children will just leave, <laughs> then we'll be at peace. If I could just establish my career, if I could just make $22 an hour, I will find rest and peace. If I could just retire, then I'll find rest and peace. Right? As Americans, we think rest and peace is just one life stage away. See, the Israelites were looking for a redeemer, someone to deliver them from their bondage. We, too, as Americans, look for our redeemer. If I could just get into the popular crowd, then I'll experience freedom. If I could just date that one guy, then I'd be free from my insecurity. If I could just get married, then I'd be liberated from this bondage of singleness. If I could just get pregnant. Or if, if she would just act this way, or if he would stop that, if he would just get out of this addiction, or if this would just change, they can bring me deliverance. We long for a redeemer. You see, the Jewish dream included the temple, the presence of God that they can look at and point at and say, God's okay with us. Now, we live in a secular culture, right? There's religious people. And us religious people, we, we want to be okay with God, right? That would include most of us here. And what we say is, if I could just get over that sin, then I know God would be with me. If I could just get over this addiction, I know I'd be, then, then God would, would be okay with me. If I could just be more disciplined, then I could really feel, feel settled. But you know what? Everyone longs for a presence, an acceptance, something to make you whole, even the irreligious people. You see, irreligious people might not be concerned with being okay with God, but they want to be okay with themselves. 
They want to say, if I could just be okay with my body, if I could just be more body positive, then I'd accept myself. If I could, if I could just be more confident or more cultured or smarter or hipper, then I'd be okay with me. You see, we long for acceptance of our own hearts, but our own hearts condemn us. Everyone in this room, everyone in this country longs for the accepting presence of something. You know, whether it's the American dream or the Jewish dream, you know, it's just a human dream. It's something knit into the fabric of what it means to be human, what it means to experience this human life. But no one lives up to our dreams. No one lives up to our dreams. And, and, then, and then like the, the 1% of the 1% that actually you know, make it to the zenith of our story, find it wholly unsatisfying. See, this is the point that Stephen's making. The Jewish dream, the American dream, you've been sold a bill of goods. You've been lied to. I've been lied to. You see, we see it all around us. There was this agreement in our culture. I'll work hard. I'll do the right thing. I'll you know, do what everyone says. I'll get that degree. And, I, and, and then in return, I'll be able to live a comfortable life. I'll be able to make enough and own a house and, and retire and have dignity, but something is happening where the powers that be have withdrawn that dream from me, and now we're angry. We're mad. We long for someone to come and give us back our dream. We want someone to make America great again. That can only happen through Jesus. Jesus is telling you and telling me that the American dream is a lie. It's always been a lie. There's something greater that Christ longs for you. You see, when Christ died on the cross and rose again, he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And now we have the righteousness of Christ. But he didn't just like put us in the back corner and say, wait here until I come back. No, no, he's exchanged our dreams for his vision for our life. He wants to take our dreams and tack it to the cross and exchange it for his vision, a vision that's far greater than houses and cards, and cars and shows and Myrtle Beach twice a year or whatever. That's the gospel. You've been freed from the American dream. Take hold of it. Behold the risen Christ. You see, up until this time, Stephen, everything he said just made everybody mad. But the next thing he says gets him killed. Look with me. Verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, 
I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. What would cause these cultured, upstanding, you know, buttoned up people in the Sanhedrin to scream, cover their ears, and take a man out of the city and throw rocks at him until he died. This guy whose primary job is to take care of widows and give them food. Well, it takes us back to a different trial at the same place before the same group of people. It's the trial of Jesus we find in Matthew 26. If you remember, Jesus is brought before the high priest. And Caiaphas, the high priest, same guy, says, it's been, rumors been going around. You've been claiming that you're the Messiah. Is that true? And Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, the Redeemer. And then he says this. He quotes Daniel 7. He says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. What do they do? They flip out. See, that passage in Daniel 7 is one of the special passages in the whole Old Testament that equates this son of man, this like guy, to be equal with God, with the ancient of days. So what Jesus did at his trial, what Stephen did at his trial, it says this man, Jesus, he's not just the redeemer. He's the one we've been looking for. He's the promised land. He's where we find rest and peace. He's the only place of our hope and our dreams. He's our deliverer and our redeemer. He's the one who has delivered us out of bondage. And he is the presence of God because he is God. He is the high priest who offered himself on the altar. And they killed him. We, that's us. We get so angry when people point out that we aren't living our dream, but we're, we're willing to cl close our eyes and stuff our ears when we hear that Jesus wants to destroy our dreams. But give us something different, a new vision, a vision that comes with suffering, comes with struggle, and pain, but ultimately forms our hearts, our communities, our countries, and our world into a place that bursts forth, that bursts forth with joy and peace. What's Jesus' vision for our life? We see it in the very first verses of the book of Revelation. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus' vision for us is to be a kingdom of priests in God's presence. And when we get that vision, when we behold the resurrected Jesus, just like Stephen did, it changes our entire life because we begin to be the promised land a deliverer, and a priest for those that don't know Christ. 
You see, our homes and our communities and our churches begins to be a place where they can find rest and peace, be protected from the bombardment of the world. And we get to be a deliverer and a redeemer to usher people to the risen Jesus, to take them and lead them out of captivity like Joshua into the promised land. And we're priests. We mediate that. We talk about who Jesus is in our lives and talk about the Bible and talk about the, the, a, a Christian worldview. And even though they don't know Christ, we can mediate that. And ultimately, we bring them to Christ, the ultimate high priest. See, it changes everything that can only come by looking at the risen son, Jesus. My... my uh, concern um, for your life, I think most of you, is that it would be like my life, especially in college. You see, I grew up in a Christian home, very, very religious home. I have shared that before. I went to a Christian college, did very well, led, you know, led things and, uh, you know, prayed and, 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 and did well in school. And, and during that time in my college, I knew I wanted to go to seminary. I knew what, I wanted to become a pastor. And during that time, there was a lot of discussion about the Pacific Northwest, uh, Oregon and Washington, how they need courageous and strong men and women to move there, serve in churches, plant churches, and to win, win the Pacific Northwest for Christ. And I thought, I'm pretty good, pretty courageous, pretty moral. I can do that. So I loaded up my water guns, charged hell with a water pistol, and I enrolled in a small seminary out there, put myself in a little U-Haul trailer, drove from Virginia to Oregon to start this new epic in my life. And I lasted six weeks. It's the worst six weeks of my life. I'd wake up in an anxious panic. I would cry during the day for no reason. I would roam the streets of Portland like a homeless man, you know? So, we, so it lasted six weeks. I couldn't handle it. It was just, I just crumbled. So what I did is I went, I literally rented the same stinking U-Haul from the same one. I opened it up, I'm like, ugh. Loaded my stuff back, with my tail between my legs, I drove back to Virginia. And I was, I had... Not an American dream. I had a religious dream. I was going to be really moral, do all these great things for Christ, be this superstar, and then God would be okay with me. He had to crush that dream. He had to pulverize it. And I'm so glad he did. And I look back 10 years ago and look back to where I am today, I, my life is a lot less... Well, that's flashy. Um, been through some things. But I can honestly tell you, my life is so much full of, of rest and peace. And I look to Jesus for my deliverance. And I, I feel like I'm a better priest before God to lead people. Because I know what it's like to be broken. And I know what it's like to be self-righteous. And my hope for you is that God, through Christ, destroys your religious dream, takes the edifice of your good works and just burns it to the ground.
so that he can rebuild a beautiful temple in its place. So, before I close, I, I want to do a quick exercise. Maybe, maybe this will help you distill a little bit, kind of what we talked about today. You'll see in the back of your bulletin, there are three, uh, three boxes. Um, and above those three boxes, it says place, person, and presence. I think every one of us in here has um, one of these is going to be our, the greatest temptation for us to turn our eyes from the risen Jesus to something else. Is it a place? Are you waiting for that next life stage? That next place in life for you to truly surrender Jesus? Hey, God, when I get my job, then I'll surrender. But until then, I gotta, I gotta put all my heart in my job and then you can have it back when I'm... Is it that next life stage? Are you putting your hope for freedom in a person? That future spouse, that future child, that wayward son? Or is it presence? Are you looking at your good deeds to say, that's what makes me good with God? God and I are even Stevens because I do, I live a pretty good life. Is it place? Is it person or is it presence? Would you be so bold as to mark one of those boxes, put a little check in there? Say, you know what, that's the most likely candidate to draw my eyes from Jesus. I put, per, I put presence, I put my own good deeds, my own, you know, whatever in, in that box. And then would you be so bold as to name something? Could you be so bold as to put, if it's a place, job, retirement? Is it the person, spouse, child, friend? Or is it presence, my good works? how much I give to the church, how much I serve at the church. Would you be so bold as to just write down something? And then final question, what bold steps do you need to do today to allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to keep your eyes on Jesus? You see, that's the whole purpose of this series for 10 weeks. We've been talking about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that empowerment is for something. You see, Jesus exchanges our dreams with his vision but the Holy Spirit, it powers us to live that new vision. And my hope and my prayer for you is that this morning and this past 10 weeks, you understand who God is and how he's using the Holy Spirit to empower your life, to make much of him. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you that you have revealed in my own heart that I was the elder brother, self-righteous, or that I look to my own good deeds as proof that you love me and not to the risen Jesus. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Um, I pray today that they will look at their hearts and think, Jesus, what is pulling me away? What am I holding on to? What part of my dream for my life am I holding on to? And can I be empowered by the Holy Spirit to release that? to you. Lord, we thank you. We can't do it on our own. We know our strength isn't enough. Lord, would you empower us to be a people who make much of your son? And Lord, we love and celebrate um, what you've done for us on the cross. I pray for our Good Friday services and Easter services 
this next week that people will see the glory, the vision of the risen Jesus and come to faith and trust in you. And we praise in Jesus' name, amen.